not only it preached about the need for balance in a man's life, but demonstrating that, you know, rechart, doing these things that are so important. So uh, I'm always excited because when he comes back, it's always a great story of what happened. You know, an inside look on what happened. I don't know, you know, how do you minister somebody on downhill, two skis? Anyway, we might hear about that. Uh, but with that said, you know, we have a great speaker. You're in store for a tremendous message this morning. You're going to enjoy it. It is uh, really fabulous. Our guest speaker is, a, is on faculty at Biola. He uh, uh, is in the communications department. He's been married for 26 years. His wife, Noreen, they have three sons. All of either graduated from college and uh, having successful careers or completing that. He's a prolific writer. He's written eight books and uh, is a frequent guest in any number of different forums uh, speaking on the issue of marriage and uh, communications. So please joining, join me in welcoming uh, Dr. Timothy Mulehole. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> hey, when your pastor gets back, you need to give him some love three sermons in a morning. I'm used to like giving one lecture, dropping the mic, walking out of the room to hushed silence. I, went, I once did a church seven services. It was two Saturday night, five on Sunday. But you get delirious. My family came the fifth, the fifth one. My son said to me, Dad, you did an illustration three times in the same sermon. I was like, well, they needed it. Oh my word. So Give some love to your pastor when he comes back. It's hard. It, you just get tired. Um, I don't even know what I'm talking about. No, I'm kidding. Uh, we've lost the ability to talk to each other in this country. A- at a time, we desperately need to talk to each other. We've lost the ability to talk about immigration, nature of marriage, gender. Uh, we don't know what to do. We, we're so entrenched today that... There's no communication. Deborah Tannen, a Georgetown linguist, calls it the argument culture. We approach every topic as if it's a verbal slugfest. What are we supposed to do about this? I'm proud of Biola University. In fall of 2020, we are launching the Winston Conviction Project, fully funded for five years. We're going to seek to reintroduce compassion, civility, empathy back into our differences with non-Christians as well as differences with Christians that we just disagree with biblically. We need to do something. But it's just not Biola University. We're all called to be peacemakers. I always say to my students, who are the sons of God? Peacemakers. And so what we're going to talk about this morning is the Apostle Paul's vision for what we should do. We're calling people back to being biblical ambassadors that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. How does God communicate to the world today? God desperately wants to communicate with human beings. How does he do it? One, nature. Two, the scriptures, but not everybody has the scriptures. Uh, There's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can convict Christians and non-Christians. Book of Proverbs says life and death is in the power of the tongue. The Holy Spirit can convict us for speaking death, both Christians and non-Christians. But the Apostle Paul says the number one way that God communicates today is through his church. We are his ambassadors. Take a look at what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says this, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, 
as though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I love that phrase, as though God were entreating through us, as though God were speaking right through us. You know, we take ambassadors very seriously in the world today. If you mistreat another country's ambassador, it is a declaration of war. If an ambassador to the United States comes and we mistreat, assassinate, or kill that ambassador, we might as well do it directly to that country. An ambassador on this soil cannot be arrested, cannot be prosecuted. The place where the embassy exists is not U.S. territory. It's the part of the country by which the ambassador resides. There's that much identification between ambassadors and their country. Let me show you a photograph very quickly. This is our ambassador to Canada, but when you look, what's the very first thing you see? Yeah, the American flag, because they're synonymous with each other. So I'm interested to think, is Paul really that serious that you're an ambassador for Jesus Christ? You're that linked, not to a country, but to Jesus himself? I think Paul's being that serious. Take a look at this passage. When Paul was Saul persecuting the early church, he's on the road to Damascus. He's knocked off his horse by Jesus. And uh, Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Interesting Saul's response, I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting this ragtag group of Christians. Jesus says, uh, when you're persecuting them, you're persecuting me. I'm the one that you're persecuting. Take a look when he's about to commission the 70 to go out and spread the gospel. Jesus says this, whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. Whoever rejects me rejects God. There's going to be people judged at the end of human history for rejecting Jesus. I imagine they'll say, when did I ever reject you? The answer will be when people from different churches presented the gospel or different Christian universities, you might as well have rejected me because you rejected my ambassador. That's how much God takes seriously the idea that you are his representatives. Now, that's a big deal. Imagine that God has his very first press conference. Right? Imagine what that would be like. Everybody would be there. And God gets up and says, listen, I know you have a lot of questions today. You have questions about the nature of marriage. You have questions about gender. You have questions about immigration, about poverty, all these different issues. I have a lot going on. There's the second coming. So I'm going to pick one person. When you have a question about these issues, you go to this one person. And he picks you. What's your name? Lisa picks Lisa. Every camera turns to Lisa. Photographs, people are Googling her like crazy, right? What emotions would you feel immediately? What, what powerful, maybe even competing emotions would you feel? Yeah, a lot of responsibility. And maybe what else? I mean, this isn't Google that picked her. This isn't Amazon. This isn't Cisco, IBM. God picked Lisa, how else would you feel? Oh, you're such a good person. <laughs> I would go the exact opposite route. I'd be like, now we're talking. Somebody get me a latte, almond milk, right? I am God's <laughs> spokesperson. Now, afterwards, Lisa might have some questions for God, right? One, maybe be just a little bit annoyed with God saying, give me a heads up next time, right? I'm not saying I wouldn't have worn that, but I might not have worn that. You know what I mean? Second, you would say to God, okay, what is my job responsibility? 
Like, like you, I'm, I'm your spokesperson. All right, I need to know exactly what you uh, want of me. Great thing about Second Corinthians, God, uh, through Paul, gives us our responsibility. Very first response, oh, let me say this about the church in Corinth. So, if Google picks somebody, if IBM picks somebody, if Biola University picks somebody and says, hey, this is our official spokesperson, I assume that's the A-team. I assume that's the best of the best. This person has been vetted, trained. Here's what's interesting about being God's ambassador. That didn't happen. Remember, the letter is written to the church at Corinth. Here's what we know about the church of Corinth. It was founded by Paul. Uh, It lived outside of Athens, think Las Vegas. Temple prostitution was huge. Idol worship was a, a huge business. Nobody at the church of Corinth had been a Christian for more than six years when he wrote the letter. How many of you have become a Christian in the last six years? Raise your hand. That's it. We've got two. That's who Paul's talking to. The rest of you can go home. Right? And then, then, of course, they're making mistakes. So Paul's always said it, said, saying in First and Second Corinthians, hey, stop doing this. I hear that there's quarrels among you. I hear that you're taking each other to court. I hear that you're e- eating food sacrificed to idols. So don't think that you have to have everything in place, all your ducks in a row, before you become an ambassador for Jesus. Paul's saying, no, no, no. He's not talking to the A-team. He's talking to the church at Corinth. Right? who maybe would grow in their stature. But right now, God's saying to all of us, if you're a follower of me, you cannot opt out of being an ambassador for Jesus. So now let's get to our job responsibility. Next. One, get the message right. If President Trump picks you to be an ambassador and he says to you, hey, go tell this to China right now. I got three things I want to say to him. One, lay off inter- in, uh, intellectual property rights. Two, uh, the tariffs, blah, 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 blah. Right? He gives you three, and you show up, and you say to the president of China, you know, I think he wanted me to tell you maybe one, two things. Here they are. Right? You wouldn't be an ambassador for very long. You get the message right. Notice the message that Paul says, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Notice the progression. One, God wants to reconcile everybody back to himself. His purpose, as he says in, uh, Jesus says in John 3.17, God did not send the Son into the world, condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. God wants to reconcile everybody. Then he says, not counting their sins against them, their trespasses against them. Don't miss that. In today's argument culture, we have been bred to start with disagreement. We have been bred to demonize other people. Paul is saying, no, that's not where God starts. Is judgment part of uh, the gospel narrative? Yes, but we don't start there. I do consulting with Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew. When Dr. Bill Bright first started the Four Spiritual Laws, much debate about what would be law one. Do we start with sin or love? He chose to start with love. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I think that's the way we should return to that, is we first say to communities, not what we disagree with, but what we admire, Right? We say to them, listen, I know we have differences of opinion, but let's not start there. Let's start with commonality. We'll talk more about that later. Second, 
Our message isn't just about future things. It's not just about salvation per se. Does God care about the eternal destiny of people? Absolutely, but that's not all he cares about. John Stopp, just went home to be with the Lord, one of our top Bible teachers, says this, I cannot claim to love my neighbor if I'm really concerned for only one aspect of him, whether his soul or his body, God cares about both. Now, sometimes the church has just cared about the soul, and sometimes the church has just cared about the body. God is saying it's both. We cannot say to people, we are deeply committed to you, we deeply love you when they're going to bed hungry at night. It just doesn't work that way. Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the top is self-actualization, but the very first need is what we call safety needs. We need to say to people, God is deeply concerned that your child is hungry at night, deeply concerned that you face harsh winters without adequate clothing, yet you don't have adequate medicine. 3,000 kids die a day in Africa because of malaria. It costs $15 via UNICEF to buy a mosquito-treated net that will help a family of seven for three to five years. We cannot say we love people and it doesn't affect our pocketbook. We can't say that we love people and ignore pressing needs uh, on them. We have to love the entire person or we don't get the message right. Second, we got to get the tone right. If President Trump says to us, look the uh, Ayatollah in the eye and say to him, you don't touch these protesters that are protesting for freedom in the streets of Tehran. You don't touch them. If you touch them, I'm coming for you. You can't sit down with the Ayatollah and say, yeah, President Trump's going to be really bummed if you touch the protesters. You didn't get the tone right. The tone here is amazing that we need to communicate to people. Here's the tone. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we become the righteousness of God. Here's what separates Christianity from other, every other world religion. Islam, Allah didn't die for you. Buddhism, the Buddha didn't give up his enlightenment so that you could obtain enlightenment. Christianity, God takes his own medicine. God comes to planet Earth. He does a horrific death. In Roman times, no Roman citizen could be crucified. It was deemed too barbaric for Roman citizens, yet Jesus dies this death for everybody. Why? Not just that they would go to heaven, but that they would flourish on planet Earth. That's the tone we need to say to people. God desperately wants you. I love what Max Licato said. What do you do with a God who'd rather die than be without you? That's powerful. So here's the tone. I, I speak evangelistically. Um, like UCLA, Campus Crusade for Christ chapter, did a, a, a campus-wide survey. If you could ask God one question, what would be the question you would ask? Number one on the list, nothing was even close. Uh, why, why is there terrorism? Like, if you're powerful, loving, why don't you just stop the terrorists? That was number one. So they called me, said, hey, we did this campus-wide survey. If you could ask God one question, here's the question. We want you to answer it. I was like, did you clear this with God? It's like, is he okay with me being the one answering? So I went and, and answered it. And here's the illustration I love to use evangelistically. Next uh, slide. <clears throat> I'm a migraine sufferer. Now, let me just say this. Love you all to death. I've tried it all. So please, between services, don't come up and say sheepskin, right? <laughs> or like aromatherapy. I've tried it. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'm good. Okay, but one thing that has somewhat helped me is Dolomit. It's not FDA approved. It comes out of Germany. My neurologist suggested it. Um, 
So Dolovin has kind of sort of helped me. So how crazy would it be not to tell a fellow migraine sufferer about it? By the way, don't miss it. I'm a fellow migraine sufferer. That's incredibly important because I can empathize with migraine sufferers. So I say to people, I think this could help. Now listen, I get nothing from the company Dolevent for telling you about this. It's not like if I get three of you to buy Dolevent, I get a flat screen TV. Uh, the only reason I'm telling you about this is because it's helped me flourish and I want you to flourish. See, when I finish speaking, I usually speak for about 20 minutes Then any question you want to ask, ask. I have the car running outside, right? Any question you want to ask, here's the number one question, without a doubt, number one question, what about same-sex marriage? Number one question. So I always say this, okay, depends on what you're asking. Can, can gay couples have a loving relationship? Absolutely, I've seen it. I have gay friends who are absolutely committed to each other, are wonderful parents. Um, I would never question their love, I would never question their commitment, right? But is it possible that God is interested in ultimate flourishing. That God, the creator of everything, knows best how marriage works. Right? Now, if they counter immediately and say, well, there you go, I have to be Christian and heterosexual to do marriage. I didn't say that. C.S. Lewis said a car is meant to run on, a, a car can run on many things. It was meant to run on petrol. So I love to say to people, God wants your ultimate flourishing. Again, I, I get nothing from sharing this perspective other than I think it's true and it's deeply helped my marriage and it's deeply helped me as an individual, right? That's the kind of tone I want to give to people is as fellow sufferers, as fellow people who want to do marriage, as fellow people who want to love our kids, fellow people who want to have a great country, we are all in this together as community members and citizens. Let's work together and not be so antagonistic towards each other. Next. Uh, look at Paul's tone. So in Paul, in Romans chapter 9, he's about to say something, but he feels the need to clarify it. He need, feels the need to give um, uh, three preemptive comments before he shares this radical something with us. This is what he says. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Now, what in the world is he going to say that he felt like he had to qualify in three different ways? Here we go. Paul says this. Um, oh, go ahead. Next. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I was cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. This is the guy who just wrote Romans chapter 8, probably one of the greatest chapters on the benefits of salvation. Now he's saying, I'll give up my salvation in order that my Jewish brothers come to faith. See, this is a huge communication principle. There is something called emotional contagion. This comes from psychologists. Emotional contagion is this. The feelings I have towards you already bleed out into the conversation even before it starts. Now, I might say that I like you. And as a Christian, it's a, teaching at a Christian university is just, you know, it's, I'm a Christian professor at a Christian university, right? So students walk up to me and I'll say, uh, and I'll say things like, hey, how are you doing? And some of them, God bless them, will actually answer. They'll say, well, you know, I'm not actually, doctor, I'm, I'm not doing well today. I'm, I'm, I'm going to meetings, right? So I'll look at him and say, oh, <laughs> I just said that to be kind. Pray for you, and I'll leave, right? So this emotional contagion, these emotions, even though I, I express to you the exact opposite. Those of you married, you know exactly what this is like. 
In the morning, you say, your spouse says, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Fine, great. Doing great. Emotional contagion has already bled into the conversation. So here's the interesting thing. We can't fake love. We can't fake it. We can say we love the gay community. We can say we love the transgender community. They know otherwise. It, it has already bled out, right? So first thing we're going to do with the Winsome Conviction Project is repentance. We need to actually love other people, not fake it. And if we don't have that kind of love, we need to go back to God and to say, what is keeping me from having the emotions Paul had or Jesus weeping outside of Jerusalem cultivate in us this kind of attitude? And I think we need to have a call of repentance. We need to love communities as much as Jesus did who died for those communities. Next. Now, live a life that doesn't discredit the message, Paul says, giving no cause for offense in anything in order that the ministry not be discredited. Here's our reputation, whether it's fair or not. Our reputation is our marriages are no better than anybody else. Um, uh, we're just as mean as everybody else. We, we attack people and demonize people just like everybody else. There is nothing distinctly Christian about your communication or your life. Now, Give, give ourselves a little bit of a break. When we do these surveys nationally, we have people self-identify. So they'll say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Like, like uh, let me give you a quick for instance. A, a massive study came out that was deeply discouraging to all of us in marriage studies. That it was that Christians and non-Christians divorce at the same rate. Non-Christians divorce at 33%. Christians divorce at 32%, virtually a statistical wash. Well, that bummed everybody out. It means we're no different than in the divorce rate. Glenn Stanton came along from the Family Research Council and said, hey, we need to redo the study. I asked you if you were a Christian, and you said yes. Now I'm going to tighten that up a little bit. By Christian, I mean you attend church uh, uh, two times in a month. You have a devotional life. Um, you pray together as a family, right? He listed like seven different characteristics. Now, that tightened it up a lot, so now the divorce rate among Christians is roughly 10%, which, isn't, you know, which is much better than 33%. So again, some of us say we're Christians, but we're really not. Some of my students at Biola, the Biblical Institute of Los Angeles, they're, they're there because their parents said, pick a college, it has to be Christian. That's why they're at Biola. So my job is to shake them up and to say, you need to examine your life whether you're a Christian. I don't think some of you are. You need to go back and ask that question, did you accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Right? So we have to live authentic lives. Right? Next. Aristotle said this. If Aristotle were here giving us advice how to be ambassadors, he would say this. Your prior reputation when you walk into a room is the most important thing about you. He called it ethos, credibility. It's made up of three things. Intelligence, can you argue both sides of an issue passionately? Both sides of the issue. Let me just say, my Christian students are really bad at this. They can argue their side. They can't argue the other side. Some of them think there aren't even arguments from the other side. So in my class, now give me props on this. I did this before I had tenure. My students <laughs> read the Quran cover to cover in my class. When they're done, they're part of 1% of American Christians who have ever read the holy book of another faith tradition. When I first did it, boy, did I get calls to the chair of my department. Here, one woman said this, I did not send my daughter to Biola University to read the Quran. I said to her as politely as possible, why did you send her? And she said, I want her to be a Christ follower. I said, okay, 
the Great Commission is incredibly important. One out of five people in the world self-identify as Muslim. I think we ought to know what fuels um, the response. Wasn't that not a good answer? Not for her. She called the dean. Um, another, a dad said to me, how will you feel if a person in your class reads the Quran and walks away from the faith? Do you hear the fear in that? I get that as a parent. Here's what I said to him. If all it took was one book, if all it took was the reading of a book, your child was going to walk away from the faith. Better it be here that we can process and put the pieces back together. So men and women, Aristotle would say, do you really want to make a difference persuasion-wise? Then sit down with any issue and passionately argue both perspectives, right? Because then a person will stop and say, okay, wow, thank you for fairly representing my perspective. Second, he said, goodwill. You, you need to believe the best about people, not the worst about people. Boy, we have a hard time doing that. I was the interim teaching pastor of uh, E.B. Free Fullerton um, for a year. It was such a fun job. It is so fun being the interim teaching pastor when you don't want the job. You get to say whatever you want. The executive pastor would walk up to you and say, I've never heard a person say that in a pulpit. Clearly, you do not want this job. And I'm like, yes, I do not want the job. So here's what I did. When the election was starting, I got up and mentioned Aristotle. I said, listen, I have no goodwill towards either candidate. I, I cannot vote for either. And I will not vote for either. But that's not Aristotle. That's not believing the best. So in this sermon, I'm going to mention the good about both candidates, Secretary Clinton and candidate Trump. And I laid it out, and everybody was mad at me. Everybody was mad. I received a six-page email, and a guy ended it with a, uh, him holding a sniper rifle. Right? So it's like, how dare you say his response? How dare you from the pulpit speak anything good about Hillary Clinton? And I was like, really? After, I mean, the work she's done on behalf of children is really admirable, even though I couldn't vote for her. The fact that President Trump wanted to add this headache to his legacy, hey, regardless of what the Senate does, he's the third American president to be impeached. That will follow him the rest of his life. Now, why did he want to do that? Perhaps because he actually has a vision of how to make this country better, right? People were looking at me like, oh, this is, who, who is this guy? Then I got them all really mad when I said, and by the way, I'm not voting in this election. I'm not. I will vote for the down ticket. I will not vote for president. I did that on a radio program. One person, man, they called in. They were so angry at me. One person said, people died for your right to vote. And I said, may I, may I counter that a little bit? They died for my right to steward my vote. And I'm choosing to steward it by not giving it. Now listen, if you're too lazy to go vote, people died for your right to vote right? Absolutely. But I'm righteously choosing not to give it. So the Wisdom Conviction Project, we're going to launch in the fall. We're going to teach churches how to have a conversation about the upcoming election. We're going to do it in high schools, Christian high schools, and we're going to do it in a couple churches, do a test case. We need to passionately disagree with each other and yet remain a body of believers, right? Okay, we got to be able to do that. Virtue, you live out what you say publicly. That's really hard to do. I literally travel all over the country speaking on marriage. I've written two books on marriage. Don't write books on marriage. Why? Your spouse reads them. <laughs> Noreen's like, we do chapter 10? Well, you know, broad strokes, we do. 
chapter 10. I was speaking at a conference one time, and Noreen, we usually speak together, but she was there the whole weekend. At the end, we're walking to the parking lot, and I said to Noreen, hey, I'm really sorry I do like half of everything I set up there. And Noreen's response was, half? <laughs> Next slide. <laughs> so what hinders us? Let me mention two things. If that's our job description, what hinders us? Okay, number one. I think it's a lack of fear. Interesting that Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He's talking to believers. There'll be the great judgment for non-believers, but all believers will stand in front of Jesus and give an account for your life. And I find that fascinating. Why would Jesus do that? Now, at the judgment seat, what is not up for debate? Jesus' love for you is not up for debate. Your salvation is not up for debate. So what's the judgment seat about? Why would he even do this? I think two reasons. One, I think he knows human psychology. I think he understands that when you have to give an account for something, that that just adds motivation. Second, I think he's going to judge us on the resources we had and how we use the resources. So I say to my Biola students, when you finish, at Biola University, what's cool about it is we pick your minor, you pick your major. Minor, everybody's a Bible minor. Everybody gets 33 units of Bible. When they finish that, they'll have more education than most pastors in the world. I tell my students, the only thing worse than being a student at Biola is being a professor at Biola. I think I'll be held to a much higher standard, right? That's what he's going to say. I think he's going to say, with all of these resources and finances, and I want to be very uh, sensitive to people economically, because some, we're not all equal economically. I did professional modeling. Um, but, but I tell my students this. There's a horrible web website. Don't ever go to it. Don't ever go. To, now, you're all going to go, but don't go to this website. It is called globalrichlist.com. Go to globalrichlist.com and type in your income. I have my students do it with their summer income they're in the top 5% most wealthy people in the world. Why? Because you're being compared to everybody. Uh, farmers in Zimbabwe, right, who live off of what? A dollar a month, right? So we all need to step back and say, what do we do with our finances? So when I was the interim teaching pastor, Christmas came, and I said, hey, before we enjoy Christmas, let's enjoy Christmas for everybody. So go to your closets, take the clothes you never wear, put, put them in these um, garbage bags we're going to give you and then pick one outfit you really, really like and stick it in there too. So we did that and people sent us photos. We filled three tractor trailers with clothes. So men, yeah, it, that's awesome. Then they said, what else can we do? I said, well, Thanksgiving's coming. You know what I mean? So get on a roll like that, that generosity that is just such a, a powerful thing for us to say we've been given great resources in this country. Let's just make sure that we use them. Okay, next. Uh, I think we have a lack of training. Starting a coral is like breaching a dam, so drop a matter before a dispute breaks out. This is what I mostly write about. I mostly write about not marriage, but civility. I've written a book called I Beg to Differ. You can find it on Amazon. I've written a book called Winsome Persuasion uh, with a dear friend of mine. We need to find ways to speak the truth in love. Peter says, give a reason for the hope that is in you in all gentleness and respect. Men and women, we're having a crisis on the relational level. We don't trust each other. We don't believe the best about each other. We need to do that even as we disagree with each other. Let me close with this. I'm trying to get my black belt in Shaolin Kung Fu. I test at the end of March. 
Uh, I have already failed it once, but I'm going to test again at the end of March. So I love the Ultimate Fighting Championship. I'm not trying to justify it. I just love it. Um, uh, so a guy named the Black Beast, he's 320 pounds, he's an uh, ultimate fighter, uh, he, g- he gave himself that moniker. He's also a Houston native. So when the floodwaters hit Houston, he got it into a boat and has reportedly saved 100 people. Now the last two people were interesting. He turns the corner and there's a, a man and his daughter, they're both shivering, they both are hypothermic. He is draped in the Confederate flag. So the black beast turns, 320-pound African-American fighter, and, and pulls up, and he says, get in the boat. The gentleman says, hey, I'm, I'm sorry about the flag, but it really means a lot to me and my family. I love the response of the black beast. He says to him, get in the boat. Get in the boat. Yeah, but my flag, yeah, get in the boat. Your daughter's freezing. You're freezing. Get in the boat. See, I think as Christians we could learn from that. I think as Christians, we come up to individuals, we have all these preconditions. Yeah, we want you to get in the boat, but first you have to change your lifestyle. First you have to be this political party. First you have to do, no, I I think Jesus is saying get in the boat. What what did the gospel say? When when he saw that the um, crowd was hungry, he gave another sermon. No, he fed them. Right? The New Testament church grew for this reason. There's a fascinating book called The Rise of Christianity written by a sociologist. There were three plagues that hit the Roman Empire. There were devastating plagues. We're talking mortality rates of 30%. Rome did not know what to do. Romans would not care for Romans. We actually have letters from Roman emperors saying, hey, Romans, care for each other, and nobody would. They panicked. As soon as you were sick, showed any signs of it whatsoever, they put you in the streets. Now, the Church of Rome had a decision to make. What do we do? Uh, do we ignore them and care for ourselves? They made a heroic decision to go out and get these plague victims and bring them back into the community, and a ton of Christians died in the process. A ton. But Rodney Stark makes this observation. Obviously, if you were saved from the plague, kicked out by your family, you had great affinity for this Christian community. But even if you didn't, word got out that Christians so loved the very people who persecuted them that they would save the plague victims, our ethos, our credibility went through the roof. And Rodney Stark says, you want to know why Christianity from a sociological perspective grew? It's because people literally died because they loved not self, they loved the other person. Men and women, from a communication perspective, if we love other people that way, then I think we're going to turn the argument culture. I think people will know we disagree with each other, but I'll tell you what, when your community's at harm, when your community needs something, we show up in droves. So the transgender community, 40% suicide rates. Attempted are actual. I think we step up with this whole gender issue. I teach a whole class on gender, and I'm concerned with how we're approaching gender as a nation, right? I believe in biblical manhood, womanhood, but nobody's going to listen to us unless we love the transgender community. I was at a pastor's conference, and I made this point, and a pastor came up to me, and he said to me, oh, i got a way to resolve the, uh, the bathroom issue. Uh, let's have three bathrooms, he, she, it. And I looked at him, I said, hey, you don't know me, I don't know you, but nobody is called an it made in the image of God. He goes, oh, come on, I was just kidding. I said, I think that makes it worse. Uh, I've never been invited back. <laughs> 
to that conference. But let me make one point, we're done. After teaching communication theory for 20 years, here's one point. How you talk about people privately is how you treat them publicly. How you talk about them. So one great application of this sermon, let's change how we talk about people. When we talk about that other political party that drives you crazy, start with the positives. And if you say to me, I can't think of anything positive about him. I can't think of anything positive of who they're going to put up. I'll say to you, you're, you're, you've got tunnel vision. You've got tunnel vision. So let's be charitable in how we talk and more importantly, charitable in how we act. Let's get people in the boat. Let's save them because God loves them physically. And then let's talk about the tough issues that we want to talk about. So let me pray for us. Father, we come before you. We're humble that you call us your ambassadors, that you speak through us Uh, We think of our inadequacies, Um, yet you say, no, you're my ambassador. I'm trusting you to speak the message, get the tone right. Help us do that. Lord, it's 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 a wild world today, Lord. We are seeing the effects of ideology today and postmodernism, and it it's concerning but let us speak with love trusting in your power your holy spirit so we lift up all these things in jesus name amen we thank pastor tim he's going to be at the back door if you'd like to greet him let's all stand together all hail king jesus all hail the lord elders and home leaders up front to pray with you if you need prayer. Please go in peace and live this week. Amen.